go to the book of Acts, go to chapter four. We are gonna spend some time walking through this book as we step into a series that we do every year that we call Live Love. And so go to Acts chapter four, and in a minute, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there, and I'm gonna be at verse 32. So I'm having an internal debate with myself. I said a bunch of stuff in our previous gathering at 8.15 that I hadn't planned to say, and I'm trying to figure out, should I say it to y'all too, or just y'all just miss out on that? I don't know. Um, so yesterday was a really cool day in the life of our church, uh, and I'm so grateful for, for, for leaders like Jesse Green um, and just the vision. Yeah, celebrate that, man. Because, and I know, I know I say it all the time, the church is so much more than what happens in this room, y'all. It's so much more than what happens in any room on this building. It's so much more than what happens on Sundays. And you know what? People ask me, is vintage what you dreamed it would be? That's a really hard question to answer because in so many ways, I don't know. But every now and then, I get glimpses of I don't know that I can explain it, but I know it when I see it. Does that make sense? To anybody? And yesterday, I watched it as so many of the people connected at our church gathered here yesterday morning, and we sent out teams to several different organizations all across our community that meet all kinds of needs, like Victory Mountain Camp, who serves our kids and our students. And that camp does is a space where I found Jesus. I accepted a call to ministry there. My kids are now experiencing that. Our kids, our, our students, it's, it's a powerful place. To a new place in our community called Lydia's House, where a church that closed has now been repurposed. That property has re been repurposed as transitional residence for families in need, to the Family Crisis Center, and to Run Five, Feed Five, and to, to there's probably something I'm forgetting, but there's all of these things that, that we're doing, and I just thought, man, I'm so grateful to watch our church just be mobilized and sent out into the community, and I'm so grateful that our church has people so much better than me. Because see, I didn't cry first service, I promise. Our church has always experienced amazing things much more in spite of me than because of me. All throughout our history, God has used those inspirational leaders that I talked about last week. God's put things on them that have led our church in the directions that have year after year better enabled us to inspire people to live in love like Jesus. And as we're sending people out of this property in Randleman, it hit me how, how close I came to refusing to let this church be here. Y'all, I didn't want to be in Randleman. And don't take offense. I know it's a great day to be a tiger, but I'm not trying to say anything about Randleman. And if y'all don't know what that means, ask anybody from Randleman. They will be glad to tell you what it means. But we started out in Greensboro. Ashley and I moved here in 2007 and bought a house in Greensboro. We thought our church would be in Greensboro, that we would be this, this urban city plant. And we ended up, we, our first times that we were worshiping on Sundays was at Southern Guilford Middle School over in that area. And September of 2008, we had not even launched yet as a church, but there was a handful of us. At that point, by the time we started gathering on Sunday mornings, there was, I don't know, maybe 20 of us at that time. 
And we would meet every Sunday at Southern Guilford Middle School, and, and we would worship. And for months, from, from September of 08 until February of 09, when we officially launched, I taught much of the things that, that you're hearing in this series, just a little bit different spin or take on all those things. And as we moved towards launch, uh, God had sent us an amazing couple, Casey and Rebecca Harris, just two of the coolest, most amazing people that you'll ever be around. They were our first student ministry leaders, Casey and Rebecca. And at the time, Casey and Rebecca Harris were teaching at Random in high school. And Casey was doing our student ministry. And we first, they started out meeting at Preston and Wendy Steele's house. And it's very interesting that now Preston and Wendy Steele are our student ministry leaders. But the youth ministry began to grow and explode. And Casey came to me, he's like, man, we're going to destroy Preston and Wendy's house. Because there's all these kids starting to show up. We're going to have to find a new place to meet. And he said, I think that I could talk the principal at Random in high school into letting us use their gym on Wednesday night. I said, dude, that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense for us to be meeting at one school on Sunday morning and having youth ministry in a totally different community on Wednesday nights. But Southern Guilford Middle School was very careful about how we could use the facility. And finally, it, was, it got to the point where we didn't have any other choice. And so our student ministry started meeting on Wednesday nights in the gym at Randleman High School. And I'll never forget, it was 50 students, 60 students, 80 students. And I remember the first night I went to, we called it Relic Student Ministry at that time. I walked in, and within the first five minutes, there was a fight, and I heard like two or three F-bombs. I thought, this is ministry. This is awesome. I'm glad we're here. (laughs) See, some of y'all get freaked out. Let let me tell you something. Followers of Jesus, stop acting or expecting people who don't know Jesus to act like people who do. And if I walk into our student ministry and there's some things that, that maybe make me uncomfortable, it's a reminder, there's people that still need Jesus. There's young people that need to be influenced. And, and I'm gonna embrace that, that discomfort and celebrate that they're where they need to be to hear about Jesus. Okay? And some of y'all are thinking, I was gonna bring my kid tonight. I don't know if I am now. So we officially launched in February of 09. And by the time we got to the summer of 09, there were maybe 40 to 50 people that called Vintage Home at that point. So we were a year into this thing, and there was maybe the people in, sitting in this section right here, that was, that was our church. And just felt like we were hitting a wall, and there's so many other things I don't have time to get into. Maybe I'll tell some more of that story next week. I don't know. But Casey comes to me in that summer, and he said, hey, man, Maybe God wants our church to be in Randleman. And in infinite wisdom, I looked at him and said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I said, no, man. Like that's, and I'm like, first of all, God's going to tell me before he tells you what stupid pride I had. And he said, maybe we just need to pray about it. I'm not going to lie. I ain't praying about nothing. We're not supposed to go to Randleman. And got to the point where It was almost over. We were out of money. I'd raised support to pay my... St- it was to the point where, like, okay, at this point, if we move and it doesn't work, I'd already started thinking, all right, it's probably time. This is, gonna, this is not going to work out. We are going to be that statistic. I'm just going to get a job. I'm going to get a real job. 
So we worked it all out. We moved to Randleman and started meeting in the theater at Randleman High School. And we had our entire kids' ministry in the gym. Imagine every age group in the same room. But we only had like six kids, and two of them were mine at the time. And next thing you know, 50 became 60, and 60 became 100. And by the time we got to 2012, the high school just didn't function anymore for the growth, especially the kids' ministry. Because let me tell you something. There's one thing we've always known how to do as a church, make babies. There's been no confusion about that happens or how that happens around here. We still grow the church the natural way. Come on. And so Casey, by that time, God had opened the door, and Casey was now teaching at Randallin Middle School right behind me here. And he said, hey, I think that we could make this work. There's, there's more classrooms that are indoors and, and all this kind of stuff, but we'll have to transition the gymnasium and turn that into the auditorium. And so, but I think, I think we can make it work. I looked at him again, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You'd think I'd learned my lesson, but I said, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll go. I don't think it'll work, but we went over there. I think it was on a Tuesday night. Our staff, and we walked in there, and we started looking around, and, and it was no, it was, there was no question that the rooms would function much better for our, our kids' ministry, and, and our kids' ministry was just doing amazing things, and we've always had amazing kids' volunteers. Can you show some love to our kids' team, Samantha, Becky, all, all our team that does such an amazing job? But here's the thing. To make that move, we needed about $100,000 worth of stuff. And we were going to take about an hour setup time on Sunday mornings to, to who knows how long. And look at me, $100,000 to our church at that time might as well have been $10 million. I mean, that's how broke we were as a church. And God opened the door, and finally we got everything secured, got all the equipment, and we were Palm Sunday of 2012, going to be our first Sunday at Randleman Middle School. So we got all our equipment, and that Saturday, we had a team of people that went over to the middle school to set up. And the first time we ever set up our church at Randleman Middle School, it took 14 hours. I know I like to exaggerate sometimes. That's not an exaggeration. That's legit. 14 hours we were there setting up. And I remember thinking, what have we, Casey, this is your fault? I remember after that 14-hour day of setting up, everybody had left. And if you know Randall Middle School, there's a breezeway, and there's a couple little, like, iron benches, metal benches in the breezeway. I remember sitting on that breezeway thinking, all right, God, I, there's no way that we can do this every week. How do I look at our church and say, we made a mistake. We're going back to, we're going back to Randallman High School. We, can't, we cannot keep doing this. And for the next five years, we set up, tore down Randallman Middle school, 14, 14 hours turned into about seven, and then seven turned into about five, and then eventually we had this rhythm where we had this amazing group of people, man, that had two teams that alternate weeks, usually, because usually somebody couldn't be there, and so somebody would be there every week. And look at me. These were people, they would work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and they would drive straight from work. They would grab a Baconator from Wendy's and come on to the middle school and help us set up every single Friday night. And it was work. And I remember asking, I remember talking to Goosey Kennedy 
That's not his real name. Again, a whole other story I don't have time to get into. Goosey and Darby and their family had been a part of our church for a little while, and they have 312 kids, and it's a busy life for them. And I remember saying, dude, why do you do this? You come straight from work every single Friday, just about, why do you do this? And he looked at me, he said, because Matt, I know that every Friday night, I'm not just putting out a chair. I'm creating an opportunity for somebody to find Jesus. In the last 15 years, every decision that we've made, even when they didn't make sense and even when they were difficult, we made those decisions deeply believing that that decision would better equip us to inspire more and more people to live and love like Jesus because the mission has always mattered most. That this mission of inspiring people to live and love like Jesus, it's, it's what's driven us every step of the way. And no matter how costly the decision, no matter what it was going to cost people that were committed to this thing, they've been willing to do it. And I'm so humbled by that reality. And yesterday, as I'm watching these dozens and dozens and dozens of volunteers leave this campus on a Saturday when they could be resting and doing other things and doing so many other projects they have around their own homes, be willing to step into places and spaces and actually just be the hands and feet of Jesus and serve and meet needs and and create spaces in our community that actually give people hope and I'm just honored. But as I've thought back over these years and all these difficult decisions, you know what I'm most grateful for is the unity with which they've been made. That these decisions haven't been easy. They've been hard. They've been costly. They've, I mean, they've required so much. And, and when, when you stand at the crossroads of a big decision, especially in the church, that's a place where the enemy can quickly breed division. Y'all with me? Y'all don't know that? Y'all never sat in board meetings in churches then. Well, you spend 17 hours deciding we going with the baby puke green or the blood red carpet. Which one are we doing? For hours, debating over to spend $5 to replace a doorknob in a fellowship hall. And yet, all these years, through all these big decisions, there's been a spirit of unity And I'm reminded of how beautiful and powerful, and look at me, necessary unity is in the body of Christ. But yet how absent it can so frequently become. That inside the walls of the church is sometimes where some of the most heated, ugly, personal divisive moments happen, and it shouldn't be that way. And how in the beginning, as we've looked at the book of Acts and we've walked through these stories of of this early church, we've noticed that there were things supremely present at the beginning that seemed glaringly absent in most of the context in which some of us grew up in. That this was a church, first and foremost, in the early days, marked by lordship and ownership. That as you step into the book of Acts, if you walk through the Gospels and read about the life and teachings of Jesus, then you move into the Acts of the Apostles, these 
men that were charged by Jesus who step in and the church is established. You see, above all was the lordship of Jesus, that they were committed to Christ above everything else, that Jesus wasn't a part of their lives. He was their lives. He was supremely priority, that Jesus has to be supreme and above all else if this thing is gonna function the way that Jesus intended it to. And there was ownership, ownership of each other, ownership of the ministry of the church. But there's something else that's very present that I want to draw your attention to. It's Acts chapter four, verse 32. Now keep in mind, this is what I'm about to read is on the heels of another extreme growth spurt in the life of the church. Remember, as we transition into Pentecost, there's about 120 believers. Then Pentecost comes, Peter steps out, preaches repentance, preaches the gospel, calls people to repent, be baptized, and put their faith in Jesus. And this 120 now goes to about 3,000. Then Peter and John, they're walking into the temple we looked at last week, and they heal this man that he has been lame for 40 days. And they say, get up and walk. And he jumps up, does the electric slide, and people get saved. And all of a sudden, the number of believers goes from 3,000 to about 5,000 because Peter and John stand their ground. They won't let their culture create even the subtlest of change in their ministry because remember what happens is they, they see all this good work doing, being done. The religious people say, do good, but leave Jesus out. You, you can keep doing what you're doing, but just stop doing this stuff in the name of Jesus. And they say, if we leave Jesus out, then all this stuff goes away. It's in him, through him, and because of him that everything is happening right now. So you're trying to tether us from the source of life. Went old school right there, life. And then because of their boldness and because of what the people have seen, it goes from 3,000 to about 5,000. And so keep that in mind, that now there's, this church is 5,000 or so people in this community. And that's what makes what is said in the Acts 4, 32 through 35 so astonishing. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I'm going to read 32 through 35. It says, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Do you see the beauty in those verses? That on the other side of yet another explosion of growth in the church, going from 3,000 to 5,000, there's two other markers that I noticed that jump off the page. That this is a movement, yes, marked by lordship and ownership, but also marked by unity and generosity. Unity and generosity. And today, for just a few minutes, I want us to lean into that first word, unity. That the church in Acts seems to move forward and always move forward, look at me, as one. 
that there's this spirit of unity that's present, that they're so busy serving the gospel, they're not fighting with one another. I remember my dad coming home from board meetings in the church that he pastored and seeing how with such visceral people would fight over stuff. And I would think, man, if y'all are that mad, this got to be something in the Bible. And you know what I discovered? They were fighting over their own preferences and not biblical principles. See, listen, the church is notorious for doing two very dangerous things. One is shooting our wounded. The other is dying on unworthy hills. The church is notorious for dying on unworthy hills. That for years, the church can get so caught up in fighting over our preferences instead of fighting together for biblical principles that we lose sight of the unity and the division that starts to grow begins to rip us apart and render us ineffective for the gospel. See, Yes, we have adversaries. We have an enemy, the devil. But look at me. I deeply believe the greatest threat to the effectiveness of the church is the church itself. That we will implode. That we will be rotted from the inside out. Because we don't know where to draw hard lines and where not to where to stand our ground and where to give ground, where to hold things with a closed fist and when to hold things with an open hand. But above all, all throughout the New Testament, we are reminded that unity should be a high pursuit for the body of Christ. It says it right there. Look at Acts 4.32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And this sentiment of unity was probably bred by the disciples because of what they heard from Jesus. Imagine that. Let me take you back up into the upper room where we were a few, a few weeks ago when we shared communion together. Because in the upper room, yes, Jesus, he ushers in this new covenant, he serves communion and he washes their feet, but he also prays for those who were present and those who would follow them in faith. It's John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. So flip over in your Bibles, look at it there. I want you to go to your Bibles, and if you're a Bible person and a Bible marking person, I want you just to take your pen and circle or highlight every time you see or hear the word one. This is Jesus, y'all look at me, praying for us. John 17, verse 20. I love to hear the shuffling of pages. I'm gonna give you just a minute to get there. John 17, verse 20. Starting with verse 20, remember, this is Jesus praying for us. It says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. May they be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one 
that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. God is never repetitive without reason. <laughs> He's never repetitive without reason. I think Jesus, I think Jesus was trying to say it's important that we're one. It's important that we're one and this whole concept of unity and fighting for unity and avoiding division is just saturating the New Testament. I would actually challenge you to find a single book in the New Testament where some concept of unity isn't spoken about. Like in Ephesians chapter four, it says, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. He says, make every effort to keep the unity. Paul would also say a similar sentiment in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. He says you need to be one, you need to be connected, you need to be unified. And over the years, the church has found almost every way we can to divide. There have been more churches planted out of division than real multiplication. We get mad, we leave, we go do our own thing. And now listen, disagreement is inevitable. Where two or three are gathered, there is an abundance of opinion. So there will be disagreement. There will be times when we don't see eye to eye. Disagreement is inevitable, but decisiveness is destructive. And look at me. You know there's a difference between being disagreeable and being dis being divisive, right? You know there's a difference between disagreeing and being divided. That we can disagree. I, can I blow your minds? We can disagree and still love each other. Wow! We cannot see eye to eye on everything, and I can still love you, and you can still love me. I know it's a crazy concept, and maybe the last two years say that that's not true, but it's true. And here's another thing. We can actually disagree in a way that's amicable. We can actually disagree without screaming at each other, yelling at each other. There's a way to disagree without being divided. There's a way to disagree without being destructive. But that begins with learning, okay, Where do we hold things close-handed and where do we hold things with an open hand? What's essential and what's non-essential for those of us who claim to follow Jesus? Where, where do we 
disagree in such a way where we've drifted from truth and we have to find a way to navigate it. And there's something that we have to do in order to handle that in a right way. And you know, denominations were started when we began to elevate certain non-essential things more, more often than not above essential things. Can I just be honest with you? I think there's so much about denominationalism that's broken the heart of God. Because it's done more to divide the church than at times advance the kingdom of God. That we've elevated things and we said, okay, if you don't line with this thing that we've elevated, you can't sit in our house. And as a church, there are some hills that we will die on. Can I, can I give you just a few of them? And these, these, are our, these are our core beliefs. And let me just go ahead and say that, that this isn't an exhaustive list. That if you're, gonna, if you're gonna die on the hill, it better be true in scripture without exception from Genesis to Revelation. But there's obviously things in scripture that, that are non-essential and there are things that are disputable. But can I remind you what Paul told Titus, Titus chapter three, verses eight, through eight and nine. It says, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish debates. Pull up your phone, go to your Facebook feed, stop deleting stuff now. Or start deleting stuff, I should say. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Romans 14.1, welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. So what are some of the things that, what are some hills we will die on? Let me give you just a handful. Number one, the authority of Scripture as the Word of God. This is God's Word. We believe it, it was written by people, but it was authored by God. In that, in his power, in his wisdom, and through the spirit that he has placed each word in it. And we need a cumulative understanding of it to form our worldview. That the, look at me, the way we see the world is not shaped by culture, it's determined by scripture. The authority of God's word. So this is where we look to, to figure out our stance on everything from marriage to money. And we're living in a time right now where there's a lot of loud voices about different things in our culture. That's why we need to know and elevate the importance and power of Scripture in our lives so that we know what does God's Word really say cumulatively from Genesis to Revelation about the issues of our time. This is God's Word. And in it, we find another thing that is a hill we will die on. There is one eternal God who created all things and exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the God of the Bible is the only God. And he created everything. And he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
And another hill we'll die on is the reality that sin severed our relationship with this God. That every person is a sinner in need of a savior. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we didn't just make mistakes that make us a bad person. We are a dead person because of sin that needs to be made alive because of Jesus. We also deeply believe and will die on the hill that salvation is found in Christ alone and is a free gift by his grace. Look at me. Jesus isn't a way. He's the only way. There was no other name by which we can be saved. Only through him can we. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. Another hill that we will die on is salvation leads to transformation. Is God saves you by his grace, but on the other side of that salvation, the Holy Spirit works in you to produce fruit in your life. That salvation isn't the end goal, it's the beginning of a life with him where the Holy Spirit begins to transform your mind, your heart, your perspective, your deeds, the way that you think, the way that you walk, the way that you perceive everything in his power. And another hill that I want to remind you that we'll die on is everyone spends eternity either in heaven or in hell. Either in heaven in the fullness of God's presence or in hell, the complete absence of God's presence. And I know like that word is, that word hell makes people uncomfortable. We put it on a t-shirt and people freaked out. And it made us uncomfortable and if y'all don't know the story, basically, there was a sermon in which I preached where I talked about, I celebrated our student ministry, that I'm glad that we don't just play games, that it's awesome that, because you know what, our student ministry wants to do more than just play dodgeball because they understand that they have a group of students for a handful of years, and those students are going to step into the real world, and many of them on college campuses that are going to challenge their faith, so we got a short time to get them ready. And I said, I'm glad we don't just play, play dodgeball because dodgeball can't save you from hell. And it's funny, people laugh, all that kind of stuff. Now it's on a T-shirt. I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, we really going to sell a shirt with hell on it? And then I remembered, it's, on our, it's all in our Bible. Might as well be on our shirt. Because here's what's funny. If we'd have switched that and said, dodgeball won't get you into heaven, nobody would have taken a second look. But you say it the other way, dodgeball won't save you to hell, people freak out. We cannot be comfortable with the reality of heaven and be uncomfortable with the reality of hell. This is what it is. And no, like I know some of us grew in that hellfire and brimstone, but the church is bad about swinging to one direction that we're so afraid to say these things that we just ignore. We're, nobody said hell in the Bible more than Jesus. Go look it up. That these are hills that we will die on because these are essential core truths that we deeply believe. And now, is that all of them? No. But every other position we take is going to be connected to or flow out of one of those positions. And if maybe you're new to our church, you say, man, I'd like to know more about these. I'd be glad to have that conversation with you because I want a spirit of unity, but I also understand that unity comes when we protect truth. Matt at VenticeChurch.net. That's my personal email. Shoot me an email. I'd be glad to talk with you about any position our church has. But on these non-essential things, we're not gonna 
argue over them because we got too much work to do to be distracted by divisiveness. But even when we do disagree, church, we have, even in disagreement, we don't have permission to abandon Christ-likeness. Because it says in Ephesians 4, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. Like we have to understand that, that even when we disagree and maybe we hold different positions, that the way we disagree matters to God. That even in fighting for truth, we need to do it with grace and with gentleness. But we also have to understand that there's a lot of things that tend to wanna creep into the church in order to create division that are completely absent of doctrine. And it most often happens when what I said happens last week, when we start wanting our way over pursuing the way. James said that more often than not, what creates division is when you just don't get your way. James chapter four, verses one through three, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you did not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It says ultimately, the church he's speaking to, you know what's causing problems is you're more concerned with your way than the way. It's more about protecting your preference over pursuing God's purpose. And I'm so grateful over these years, there's been a unified voice declaring we are here to inspire people to live and love like Jesus. And if we're gonna continue to do that for years to come, we're gonna have to guard that because more decisions are coming in the days ahead perhaps some of the biggest decisions we've ever made as a church. And as we navigate the future, we will navigate it best if we do it together in a spirit of unity. Can you bow your heads, close your eyes with me? When you hear these words, as you're in a spirit of prayer, from Romans chapter 15, verse 5, now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, with one mind and one voice. God, protect a spirit of unity in your house among your people. God, yes, we always want to fight for and stand for those essential things that are declared in your word that we must protect. But God, help us to always do it with a Christ-like attitude and spirit. And God, help us to have the discernment to know when to operate with a closed fist and with an open hand, when to dig in our heels and when to just relax our hearts. And God, may we move forward with one voice, declaring one gospel as one people, inspiring people to live and love like Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Hey, before you head out, yeah, celebrate what God's doing. Before you head out this morning, I just wanna remind you of a couple things. Ladies, 
the early bird registration for Women's Weekend, which is in a powerful time over at Victory Mountain Camp for ladies in our church. That early bird registration is about to expire and a lot of the spots have already been taken. So make sure you sign up, be a part of that amazing weekend. Also remind all of our students and your families tonight, student ministry will be happening 5 p.m. here on campus. And make sure you're taking note of all the other things that are happening throughout the week at our church. And today, if you're in the room, you're in the building as you head out, we have tons of food left over from yesterday and our Share the City Day. So we'd love to send lunch home with you. There's some stuff set up in the back part of the parking lot. Go by there. We'd love to put some food in your hands for you, your family, your neighbors. We love you guys. Thank you for worshiping with us. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.